Hey everyone, it's Megan, the Family Finance Mom, adding a new weekly segment to Finance Explained. Now, in addition to the weekly deep dive episodes each season, I'll be posting Q&A replays two times a week. I host these sessions live on Mondays and Wednesdays at 9 a.m. over on Instagram. If you'd like to have your questions answered, look for the question box in my stories ahead of each session or join live and ask in the comments. But to make it easier for you to listen to the replays on the go, in segments, and at your convenience, you can now listen here. But first, this week's episode is brought to you by the Family Finance Mom Economic Workshop Series. So many of you have asked for more formal education on specific topics, and now you have it. The Economic Workshops are a series of six hour-long sessions each on a specific economic topic to grow and deepen your financial and economic literacy and give you the confidence to make solid financial decisions for yourself, your family, and your future. If you've ever wondered, is this a good time to buy a house, change jobs, save more, invest more, start a new business? Should I be taking a big risk right now or maybe I need to be more cautious? Understanding how the economy works as well as the state of the current economic environment as a whole, can help you form more informed decisions on all of the above. The Economic Workshop Series will arm you with all the economic know-how you need to do exactly that. The first workshop, What is a Recession?, covered the economic cycle and how recessions are a natural part, and fortunately the shortest part, of the cycle. We talked about leading and lagging economic indicators, past recessions, and more. The full replay is available now. The second workshop, What is Economics? Scarcity, the Free Market, Supply and Demand, will be live February 23rd and is open for enrollment now. You can participate in the live workshop or catch the replay at your convenience. Each workshop includes 45 minutes of instruction followed by your questions. Choose the topics you want to learn more about or save money and get all six sessions with the Economic Workshop Bundle, including immediate access to January's workshop replay on recessions. Visit FamilyFinanceMom.com or the link in today's show notes for details. Hey, Family Finance Moms, happy Monday. For those who are new, welcome. I'm Megan, the Family Finance Mom. And twice a week, I hop on for about half an hour to answer as many of your personal finance, economic, and market news questions as I can. Uh, I do save these recordings. You can catch the replay in their entirety here on my video feed on Instagram, or I also upload the audio to my podcast, Finance Explained. Um, There's a whole bunch of questions that came in last night. Um, I take the questions that people submit in the question box the night before. Um, But if you're here watching live, you're always welcome to kind of comment and ask questions as we go along. I'm going to start with the question that I've gotten probably the most over the last handful of days, both in DMs. And then there's a whole bunch of questions um, that people submitted in the box last night around it. Uh, And it's all about these mortgage rules. So the questions are things like mortgage. Please help us understand the new rule, RE, additional fees for high credit scores, Is it true that Biden is changing interest rates to make those with a better credit score pay more? Um, Thoughts on new FHA policy, higher fees for good credit, lower fees for bad credit. Can you explain Biden's new mortgage law and how that will affect the economy? So there's lots of questions around this. And I also think there's a fair bit amount 
of misunderstanding in terms of what exactly is going on and how it applies. There's some of it that is accurate. There's some of it that's a little bit of a disconnect. So I'm gonna try to walk through as best I can what the actual facts are, and then talk about what the economic implications of these changes are and why it is not necessarily the best economic policy. Um, so first, I want you to understand that there are two different kind of things happening here. One are changes to the mortgage insurance premium being charged to FHA mortgage borrowers. And then two, there are changes to what are known as LLPV or loan level pricing adjustments for conventional mortgages that are backed by Fannie and Freddie. Um, and those are government-sponsored agencies that uh, guarantee mortgages and are really represent kind of the bulk of mortgages that are out there, call it like 40 to 60%. Um, so let me walk through those two changes and talk about how these changes were made. Um, first of all, both of these changes are being made by federal agencies. They are not being made by law. So remember that Congress uses laws to establish federal agencies and then those federal agencies are empowered with certain authorities where they can make changes at their discretion. And so that is how these changes are being made. This was not a law enacted by Congress. Congress enacted these agencies and empowered them into existence. You can kind of think of it as akin to like the Federal Reserve being our central bank. They're empowered with certain authorities as the central bank. The same is true of these federal agencies that oversee some elements um, of the mortgage market and the government guaranteed mortgages. So in the case of the first change on the reduction in the mortgage insurance premium, these are for FHA loans specifically. These changes were enacted by HUD or the Department of Housing and Urban Development. And the goal really across both of these is to make housing more affordable by lowering fees charged on mortgages. And I'll talk about kind of some of the variations of that. The Biden administration is trying to make housing more affordable in the face of inflation, in the face of rising interest rates. Um, let me talk about the FHA changes first. For the FHA fee changes, FHA stands for Federal Housing Authority. FHA loans only represent kind of single, like high single digit percentage of loans. So a roughly call it 10% of mortgages are FHA loans, but the vast majority of FHA loans are for first time home buyers. FHA loans tend to be for people that are lower income, lower credit quality. They may have high debt to income levels. Um, they're generally gonna be higher expense loans to begin with. They require less of a down payment but they, they always come with mortgage premium insurance, which is when you don't put enough of a down payment down, you have to pay for an insurance premium to insure your lender against the risk of default. So this mortgage insurance premium for um, FHA loans has been reduced by 30 basis points or 0.30% across the board. So this is true no matter your credit rating, this is true um, no matter kind of value of your mortgage. However, it has always been true that if you have a loan amount that is greater than a certain amount, and they call these jumbo loans, 
you had a higher mortgage insurance premium rate than if your mortgage was lower. That has always been true, but they've cut the rate across the board on all of those by 30 basis points. And so just to give you some perspective, if you took out an FHA loan, and remember FHA loans are for roughly about 10% of borrowers that don't qualify for a conventional mortgage for a host of reasons, usually because you don't have enough of a down payment, as well as like you're a first time home buyer, you may not have the greatest credit or you may have too high of a debt to income ratio to qualify for a conventional mortgage. And so you go this FHA route. Just to give you some perspective, previously, if you had a loan that was less than $726,000, your previous mortgage insurance premium rate was 85 basis points for the life of your mortgage if you put down less than a 5% down payment. Now it's 55 basis points. So that's that 30 basis point cut. If your mortgage loan was over $726,000, your previous mortgage insurance premium rate was 105 basis points or 1.05%. What does that mean? It means that every year, in addition to your mortgage payment, you're going to pay 1.05% of the value of your mortgage as a mortgage um, insurance premium, like insurance essentially. And that now has been cut by 30 basis points to 75 basis points. So it is higher if you have a larger loan value, but that has always been true. So that's kind of the first bucket of changes that have happened. The place where people are in more of an uproar is in the second category of changes. And that is not for FHA loans. It is for all Franny and Freddie backed conventional mortgage loans. Um, and these, like I said, fall under a category called loan level um, pricing adjustments. And the way to think of it is when I share every week what the average mortgage rate is for, you know, looking out across the board and we'll say like, you know, last week, I think it was 6.4%, for example. But when you pick up the phone and you call to get a quote for a mortgage, yours might be different from that. That 6.4% is sort of like, here's the, the norm. And then depending on certain criteria, your price will be adjusted. That's that loan level pricing adjustment based on various criteria. Some of those criteria are things like your credit score or um, the down payment that you're making, or are is this a primary residence or is this an investment residence? Or is this a standalone home or is this a condo? All of those things have loan level pricing adjustments associated with them. These loan level pricing adjustments are overseen and put out by the FHFA, which stands for the Federal Housing Finance Agency. And they are the ones that kind of empower Fannie and Freddie, who are these government-sponsored agencies, to backstop. And they're not backstopping the mortgages themselves. They backstop the mortgage-backed security purchasers. So what ends up happening is these loans are standardized so that people can bundle them all together and then sell them off in pieces as bonds. And the government guarantees those bond investors in the event of a default. So it's kind of like an indirect guarantee as opposed to the direct guarantee that's associated with like FHA loans. And I don't know that's kind of like a technicality, but I'm just trying to like explain the differences here. So where is the issue here? 
And I'll share this table and a link to it in my stories later because it's like super, super tiny. But what has happened is they basically created this loan level price adjustment fee schedule that has some sort of like weird changes in it. Because normally, if you had more of a down payment, you would expect to have a lower interest rate on your mortgage because that's less risky. If you have a higher credit score, that means you have better credit, you would expect to have a lower interest rate on your mortgage because you are a less risky borrower than say if somebody has a lower credit score. But the table that they've now put out, and I'm just gonna kind of highlight a couple examples. Um, on this new table, if you have a credit score below 640 and you put less than a 5% down payment on your home, your LLPV, your price adjustment would be plus 1.75%. So what does that mean? It means that if the going market rate for a 30-year mortgage is 6.4%, if you have less than a 640 credit score and you put less than a 5% down payment on your home, your rate would be the market rate 6.4% plus 1.75%, okay? So you are gonna pay higher than kind of the going market rate. However, under this same table, somebody who has a 680 credit score and puts a 20% down payment down on their home will also pay 1.75% on their mortgage. And if you put less of a down payment, 15%, you're gonna have an adjustment of, 1.875%. So you have some of the, like some distortion where the government is creating, they're essentially mispricing risk. And anytime you misprice risk, even if the intent is to make it more affordable to own housing, you're going to create perverse incentives and it tends to end badly. Um, in attempting to make loans more affordable, you are also increasing demand, right? So if I make something less expensive, it increases demand. And in the current environment, right, the Fed is hiking interest rates because they want to reduce demand in order to reduce inflationary pressure. So if the federal government is then doing the opposite of that, they're lowering these mortgage rates in order to make it easier to get a loan, make people have more demand because it's more affordable to buy a house, they're ramping up inflationary pressure in the housing market at the same time that the Fed is trying to cool things off. So it's like it's like constant butting of heads and friction in what goals we're trying to achieve in the marketplace. And oh, by the way, at the lower end of the market, there's very limited supply. So the likelihood of inflationary pressure by doing this is greater as well. So I understand the intent However, it's like, I feel with a lot of things that happen in government, and this is true, like no matter who is in charge, I feel like there's nobody who is economically thinking through the secondary and tertiary impacts of these decisions. So, okay, yeah, you want to make housing more affordable. So you're cutting rates for one end of the um, economic spectrum. Um, but the secondary impact of that is higher inflationary pressure in the housing market. So you're like counteracting yourself. Um, so it's a little, it's it's complicated to say the least. Um, there are various, there's more than just one change happening here. Um, and 
anyway, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me, but you should understand kind of, I think the two things to understand is one, it's bad economic policy. Two, this is not a law that is passed by Congress. These are changes being made by federal agencies who were empowered and authorized by Congress. So much like student loan forgiveness, which is now being litigated and is awaiting a decision from the Supreme Court, this is a similar thing where a federal agency is using their powers to affect these changes and these goals of the overall Biden administration. Whether or not these will hold, they're, I believe, supposed to go into effect on May 1st. Um, you should also know that many of these were announced like in January and February, and it's only now as like how they're actually being implemented and all these rules are being handed out to like the mortgage brokers that the uproar is sort of coming about from it. They're supposed to be going into effect on May 1st. Uh, so we'll see kind of what happens in the coming days. But I guess the factual answer is yes, there are scenarios where somebody who has higher credit score and makes more of a down payment could be charged a higher interest rate on their mortgage than somebody with a lower credit score and much less of a down payment. Um, and so, and again, these are the interest rate percentages, not necessarily like the monthly payment as a whole, because somebody with a higher credit score and making more down payment may be taking out a bigger mortgage to begin with. Um, but so to answer your question is, you know, what are the facts around it? Yes, it is factual that there are these changes being made that don't make economic sense, that aren't consistent with like how we would appropriately price risk. Um, and what do I mean by like when we misprice risk that things end badly? Well, think back to like the Great Recession, right? How did we end up in that huge housing bubble where there was like a, almost an entire collapse of both Wall Street and Main Street? Well, it was because we made these ridiculous, ridiculous mortgage loans that were guaranteed by the federal government um, to people who couldn't afford them to begin with. And as risk got repriced and readjusted in the marketplace, it all started to fall apart. Um, when you create false incentives for demand for people who can't actually afford it, it creates big problems. Um, and then there's long fallout from those problems too, right? Like, so if somebody who has poor credit quality gets into one of these mortgages, they're then able to buy a home in a working class neighborhood next to people who worked hard to put a down payment and maintain their home. If you can't really afford it and then you're not maintaining your home well and then your home falls into foreclosure, what does that do to the rest of the neighborhood? Um, those are like all the different kind of concerns and secondary and tertiary effects. Um, so anyway, that's kind of the data points that are going on in my stories today. I will link up links from directly from these federal agencies that lay out exactly what these tables look like. So you can kind of see for yourself what the numbers are and how they're impacted. What you need to understand again, is there are two issues at hand here. There are impacts to FHA loans where mortgage insurance premiums have been cut by 30 basis points across the board. There's no distortion there between um, you know, credit limit or credit rating, credit scores, sorry, um, everybody is getting a 30 basis point cut across the board. And their rationale for that is that they have significant kind of coverage relative to their um, book of loans. And so 
They want to reduce and make things more affordable. And so they're cutting those rates. That's one. And then the second table I will share with you will show you loan level pricing adjustments that basically in plain English is this amount is going to be added to the mortgage rate if you fall under this box is sort of the way to think about it. And there's two tables. One will show credit score down one side and then loan to value. Loan to value just means what is your down payment? So if something has greater than 95% loan to value, it means that you're borrowing, your mortgage is 95% of the value of your home. So you've only put down a 5% down payment. That's how to read that table. And the number that appears in the box is what gets added to kind of the market level mortgage rate um, in that scenario. There's a second table that shows other characteristics that have low level price adjustments. And that's things like, is it a condo? Is it an investment property? Is it a second home? Um, is it a multifamily property, like a two or a four unit property? Uh, things like that. So I will share those tables. I will share the links directly to the federal agency sources that publish these tables. So you can see exactly where it's coming from. Um, but anyway, it's, I, I like full, period full stop, it's poor economic policy and will create negative ramifications and spillover effects in the economy. It's also doing the opposite of what the Fed's purported goals are, which is to try to rein in inflation. Um, and while it may lower the interest rate for specific borrowers, it will have the likely impact of putting upward pressure on housing prices um, in those various markets. So it's kind of like, you know, six eggs in one hand and half a dozen in the other. So yeah, we're going to lower the interest rate, but we're going to push prices up at the same time. So it's important to understand when you're seeing these policy changes to understand like the economic ramifications, um, because it's not, yes, we're going to lower the interest rate, but it's going to make the house you try to buy more expensive is kind of the way to think about it. Um, and you need to understand that. Uh, so I hope that that somebody's saying, is there an oversight committee for these agencies? Well, technically, the oversight committee is Congress, right? And if people feel that the decisions they are making either one oversteps their authority, which is kind of the argument that has been made in the student loan scenario, there is a legal process to challenge that, right? So if somebody is being um, like, there are no... And I'm not a constitutional law expert, but certain groups have discrimination protections. Credit is not one of those discrimination protections. Um, but the other thing to know, too, is like if a certain federal agency is going to charge me a higher rate for a mortgage because I have better credit and I'm making more of a down payment, like what are you going to do? You could make less of a down payment in order to get a better rate or you could go somewhere else that is not making these uneconomic adjustments to their mortgage rates. Um, so anyway, I don't know if we'll see kind of how it all shakes out. It definitely feels like kind of this world that doesn't make sense from somebody who is a finance and economic person. Um, so like I said, I'll link those tables up so you can get a closer look at exactly what those look like. Um, but just know that, yes, it is factually accurate, the questions that you're asking, and we'll see kind of how it ultimately plays out. Okay, now let me switch gears to kind of the rest of the questions that are that got submitted. Uh, we did a $750 CD at 
were we better doing a high yield savings account at 4.29% so it could compound? So here's the thing about certificates of deposit. They have a certain term. So, you know, they might be a 12 month CD or a six month CD, and then they come to maturity and then you have to reinvest it in order to continue earning interest. So you can still get the benefit of compounding, but it takes a little more effort because you have to pay attention to, okay, my CD is up. Now it's just cash sitting in my account. In order to keep earning interest, I need to reinvest it in a CD. Um, that makes it take a little more effort. So you're not in a bad situation because you earn more interest than say you would have if it had been put into a high yield savings account, but you're going to have to pay attention and take action in order for it to continually be earning interest and compound over time. If you don't want to like lose sleep over it and you don't want to have to take that extra action, you could just put it in a high yield savings account where it's always going to earn interest, although that interest rate can change and move over time. That's kind of the way to think about it. So hopefully that that helps and gives you some insight there. Uh, okay, next question. Uh, thoughts on long-term disability insurance. My husband's employer covers only three years. So let's talk about what long-term disability insurance means. Long-term disability insurance means that if something were to happen to you, and it doesn't have to be on the job, it could be you're in a car accident, um, coming home from your family vacation, or you know anything, and you become disabled, and you can no longer work and serve in whatever role that you were serving in the past, they will make you whole to some degree on your income and your benefits. It's essentially what long-term disability insurance is doing. It is often not going to guarantee 100% of your income. Um, so you need to kind of understand exactly what the coverage and the terms are. In this scenario, you're saying they're providing it for up to three years. I think of this similar to the way that I would think about life insurance. If you are financially dependent, if you have children who are financially dependent on you or your spouse's income, what would happen if you no longer had that? So in the event of their death or in the event of their disability, you need some way to financially protect yourself. And so long-term disability insurance does that as does life insurance in the event of their death. So what I would do is a lot of times there are disability insurance benefits that are included as part of your employment benefit package. They will often let you add additional coverage through that package, though you then have to pick up the premium costs. So they're covering premium that covers up to three years. If say your children are call it 15 or let's, let's change. Let's say your child, your youngest child is 10. Well, they're still going to be dependent on you for at least eight years. And maybe if you think college and things like that, like another 15 years. So maybe you want to expand that coverage to be 15 years. Start with his benefits department and see if that's an option through them. Otherwise, there are independent places where you can get long-term disability coverage. But that's kind of the way that I would think about it. I would think about it the same way that I think about like life insurance benefits. Insurance is designed to financially protect you and give you peace of mind. So if you are dependent on your husband's income and you and your children are dependent on that income, insurance gives you that kind of financial protection in the event something were to happen to, them, to him, whether it's disability or in the case of life insurance in the event of a death. Um, so that's kind of how I would think about it. 
Uh, okay, next question. Sorry, I'm like skipping through all the mortgage questions that I already addressed, so it's just taking me a minute. Um, okay. Please explain an annuity. What are the pros and cons or benefits over a Roth? When should you do one? So annuity is a financial term. There's a formula associated with it, and it simply means an annual payment stream at a given rate. That's all an annuity means. So when you buy an annuity, it typically means you're putting up some lump sum amount up front, and in exchange, they are guaranteeing you an annual payment stream. Now, behind an annuity is a whole bunch of assumptions, like what is the term? For how many years are they going to pay you that payment stream? They're making some interest rate assumption associated with how all that math factors out. Here's what I will say kind of the pros and cons of, uh, of an annuity are. The pro is that it gives you certainty. I know that I could put up a million dollars today and in exchange, I'm going to get paid a fixed amount guaranteed for the next however many years, like whatever the terms of that annuity are. It removes some of that market risk and uncertainty. The con or the trade-off for that is that when you buy the annuity, the other side is making all kinds of assumptions, right? And nobody is going to engage in this contract if it doesn't make them money. So it tends to cap your upside. They're going to guarantee you a payout that has an interest rate assumption that is less than what they can take that money and invest it for in the open market. So the con is that if you wanted to give up that certainty of the payment stream, you could take that lump sum yourself and invest it and generate likely a greater return potential. Um, however, you're going to have to kind of stomach the ups and downs of the market along the way. But if you're willing to do that, you could likely earn more over time yourself investing directly in the open market than locking yourself into a guaranteed annuity payment stream. So the pro is you're having certainty around what your payment stream is going to be, but the con is you're locking yourself in and likely giving up upside potential. And you probably could do better if you invested in the open market yourself, but you have to be willing to kind of stomach that risk and those ups and downs along the way. So that's really what how to understand the financial math behind an annuity and what the trade-offs are. It depends on kind of your risk preferences, your risk tolerance, um, and what you want out of something. Now, the difference with like a Roth IRA, right, is you're making an investment in various risk profile investments, and you have to kind of ride the ups and downs of the market of changes in interest rates and things like that. Um, now you're also starting to see kind of what I'll call like hybrid offerings where some like 401ks may put themselves forward as an annuity offering. So instead of you contributing to your 401k every month and then choosing an investment fund to go in, you're making contributions towards an annuity that when you retire pays out some guaranteed um, payment stream upon retirement. But that's kind of how to understand how they work and what the pros and cons are associated with it. So it really kind of depends on your risk preferences, your tolerances, and you could also do kind of a combination of the two, right? Like you could take some lump sum and buy an annuity that gives you 
a certain amount that's guaranteed over a certain specified period of time. And then you could have some that you leave invested that allows you to capture some of that upside potential too. It doesn't necessarily have to be all or nothing. Um, but that's kind of the way to think about an annuity and how it works um, and like the benefits as well as like the potential downsides. Uh, okay, next question. And I know I'm at the 30 minute mark, but I'm gonna try to kind of get through the last couple of questions here. Uh, if two thirds of the economy is consumer driven, what is the rest? Government spending question mark. So this is a good question. The other third is made up of a few different things. One, so there's a formula when we talk about GDP and it is GDP is equal to consumer spending, investment, and investment can be things like residential investment, like buying of houses. It can also be business investment and things like inventory and plants and equipment and things like that. Um, so consumer spending, investment, government spending, um, and then the last part is net exports, which in the case of the U.S. is actually a negative impact because we import more than we export. Uh, okay. Next question. Uh, I'm reading Panic. Panic, for those who are not aware, are our... Um, our FFM book club pick for Q2. Um, and the question is, how do arbitrage and portfolio insurance work? So arbitrage is basically, it's kind of a way to think of if there is something is mispriced in the marketplace, how people take advantage of it. That tends to be what we characterize arbitrage. So for example, we just talked about all these like mortgage adjustments that are being made in the market there will be arbitrage opportunities because risk is not priced appropriately. That's what creates kind of arbitrage opportunities. Um, the second part of the question, portfolio insurance. Portfolio insurance is sort of like downside protection on various investment positions. And there's lots of different ways that people can get that protection. One example would be, for example, buying um, credit default swaps. That's an example of how you can protect yourself. Like if you're invested in a bond, you could buy a credit default swap that protects you in the event that that um, borrower goes bankrupt. You would get a payout for that bond if they go bankrupt. Um, other forms of portfolio insurance are things like options, like puts and calls, uh, where you can you know, give yourself downside protection on various investment positions. Um, all right, I'm gonna go ahead and cut it off here because I'm over the 30 minute mark. If I didn't get to your question, feel free to resubmit it on Wednesday. And as I mentioned before, I do post these replays um, both here on Instagram, as well as the audio portion uh, to my podcast. Um, a couple other things. One, GDP for Q1 comes out this week. So we'll be looking at that. Um, and I'll also be sharing today in stories where we're at so far with Q1 earnings. So I hope you guys have a great rest of the week and I'll be back here Wednesday at 9 a.m. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this Q&A replay. As a reminder, to have your questions answered, be sure to follow me on Instagram at Family Finance Mom and look for the question box in my stories ahead of each live session or join live Q&A at 9 a.m. Eastern every Monday and Wednesday. Any resources mentioned in today's replay can also be found in today's show notes.